Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia Success Podcast, where we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. On this show, I work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. This week, I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Michael Fishman. I enjoyed hearing from Mike about his career and how it has been aided by both preparation and hard work, as well as serendipity. And I think you're going to enjoy that story. He's developed into a key opinion leader in the interventional pain and neuromodulation space. And he's also an entrepreneur. And we talk a lot about an exciting platform that he's building in conjunction with some other physicians who were all running into the same problem, which is they were having difficulty getting feedback in real time from patients about the efficacy of various treatments that they had undergone. We also talk about some of Mike's personal reflections and general advice for physician entrepreneurs with many competing priorities. As always, thanks for joining this week. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. I'm joined today by Dr. Michael Fishman. Mike practices outside of Philly, here uh, where I'm located with my wife, and he's also a personal friend. He's here to share a bit about himself and his career, some of the innovations he's working on in interventional pain that have application not only for his specialty, but medicine in general. Mike, thanks for being here. Hey, Justin. Thanks for having me. So quick story for our listeners. One, I would say, like impactful experience that I've had uh, where we were at ASIP last year and um, Dr. Fishman was on a panel with Dr. David Provenzano, Dr. Ricardo Vallejo, uh, and, and a couple others talking about the future of neuromodulation. It's a cutting edge area of study and science and patient care. And talking about the future of a segment of pain that is sort of the future in itself, I, I just remember my mind being kind of bent and perhaps blown in different ways, hearing you describe some of the things that you think might be out there in the future. Yeah, that's a, that was a, a talk that was really fun to give. You know, oftentimes, uh, and a lot of the research we've been doing and presenting on have been related to clinical trials. And, you know, of course, we're presenting the scientific rationale behind the study and where how we came to those results, and ultimately the results of the, the study. But that's you know, not a particularly artistic way to, to give a lecture. And being invited to give a futuristic talk on the future of neuromodulation probably spawned by an article that I, I co-authored with some really, really smart guys um, and future-thinking uh, neuromodulators last year got me really thinking about, you know, what is neuromodulation? Is it just a, a therapy? But how can it also be tools to help us understand pain and painful pathways and validate, you know, many ways um, you know, it's hard for us to be sure of what we're doing with both neuromodulation and pharmacotherapy and chronic pain. But, you know, neuromodulation and neuromodulation techniques have really important implications in starting to understand that to the future. So Justin, just to give like some insight into, I'm not talking about just like what you called before Star Wars stuff. One thing are these little things called neural dust particles. And these little neural dust particles can be injected or uh, implanted percutaneously, you know, your anesthesia residents can inject them as much as they would with ultrasound and, and like a block. The difference is these little dust particles, they actually, they actually can sense and make recordings from the brain and neural tissues. And those recordings can be um, read or detected using ultrasound or high frequency ultrasound. Uh, neural dust has been used to monitor uh, epileptiform patterns in rat models. Think about the implications for starting to monitor the neural pathways and sort of interact with them once this becomes biphasic and bimodal. That's pretty cool. Another is optogenetics. So how we can use light 
and light activated molecular switches that can be inserted into specific cell types uh, using fibril vectors to start to understand how photoneuromodulation and using this to understand how turning off specific signals can give us um, almost reversible knockout models, if you will, um, to start understanding pain pathways and the selectivity of different pharmacologic agents and things like that. What's really cool about that, the Star Wars stuff, is that there are little mice running around with, with LED light chips in their brains, and those are pretty cool and, and interesting experiments to watch. But in general, what it really starts to, to highlight, and I think the, the overall concept of the future of neuromodulation, and in, in, I'll extend this to the future of pain care, is starting to understand why we are doing what we're doing and aligning the metrics that, by which we judge success and patient success as appropriate to the disease state, where a linear pain scale from a zero to 10 may be appropriate in the post-operative phase or in the PACU, that's probably not appropriate for the chronic pain patients coming into my office every day, where in general, the pain scale is looked at as, you know, I think the same way many of us would look at um, a, you know, sign that says no standing more than 20 minutes. Most people are going to say, well, you know, if I got to stay there for 25 minutes, I'm pretty much okay. And most people, if you ask them the difference between a seven and an eight, they really can't tell you the difference. At the end of the day, pain scales are almost insulting to both physicians and to patients. And so, you know, with respect to understanding molecularly the mechanisms behind why we're doing what we're doing, which is actually a lot of the work that Ricardo Vallejo has done, I know you, you want to talk about later, uh, we still have to understand what treatment success means to our patients. Um, and, and here we're going to understand what anesthesia success means to, uh, to Justin Harvey and his, his podcast listeners. Yeah, it's funny. I was, uh, so I had, I, I told you, Mike, separately, but I had that problem with my neck last year. I had the, the spinous process of the C7 fractured. And I was, it was, I remember waking up, my wife was on call. I was in a 10 out of 10 on the VAS. And I remember going to the emergency room and I remember them asking me, like, you know, on a scale of zero to 10, like, where are you? And I, I <laughs> you know, you're friends with too many pain management docs when I, they were asking me this question. I was like, oh, this is that thing that they were talking about, you know, the, this, the, the problem with this like subjective question, there's no objective criteria. And, and, you know, so I, as I'm in blinding pain down at Presby in the ED, I was thinking about this. Um, but I know that you had a, a kind of funny story uh, about meeting Dr. Vallejo. Oh yeah. That's, that's an, that's, you know, that's an interesting story. I was at a dinner a couple of years ago at Nan's. Uh, my first year out of fellowship with my my partner. And so I, I got invited to this dinner. I, I had no business being invited to, frankly. And I sat down um, at a fellowship for about six months. And I'm at this table uh, with very, very experienced, well-known neuromodulators, people who you know are writing all the articles and doing all the studies and the top of the game people. And my partner's on the other end of the table. And I'm sitting next to these guys. And I start talking to this guy across the table with a funny accent about Pulse RF. And we're talking because I'm really interested in Pulse RF. And when I was a fellow, I got interested in it because we at Stanford, we, we did things because they made sense for patients. We didn't always do things just because, you know, they were available commercially. And but we were doing a lot of Pulse RF at the time. And uh, one of my faculty there told me, you know, it's OK to get obsessed with things. If you want to learn more about them, go read everything you can. 
And we had this project that we were supposed to do uh, to present to the group. So I put, picked Paul Starraff and I got obsessed. I read every paper, every written. And there was this one paper that actually described the mechanism by which Paul Starraff modulates gene expression by Vallejo R. <laughs> so here I am talking about Polster F with this guy across the table. And I finally figure out the fact that, because you don't know his name. I don't know anybody's name, but I just know that these are all important guys. You know, it's six months out of fellowship. And I find out this is Vallejo R. And, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh. So how'd you come to that conclusion? Like, tell me more about this. And we're going back and forth and people start paying attention to what we're talking about. And at the end of that dinner, he said, you know, this has been a real pleasure. I'd love to work with you sometime. And ever since then, I've had, an, have had this great mentor and this opportunity to, to get in, engaged in clinical research and really spur clinical research in our practice such that we've done, you know, over 20 studies in the last five years, um, both initiated by us and working with industry partners and, and working with startup companies. It's been one of the most exciting parts of my career. And most of it was really the, the hearing Ricardo's story, which is he did research real clinical research, you know, high fidelity clinical research rapidly in private practice and was innovative and effective in doing that. And was a huge inspiration to, to my partner, Phil Kim and I, to, to start doing this really aggressively. And since then, we've had such an enriching practice because of it and, and had the opportunity to work with new therapies and offer them to our patients. That has been extremely rewarding. It's, it just goes to show you the, the role that, uh, you know, serendipity can play in creating our uh, vocational destinies. It's absolutely true. You know, to go back to what you're talking about before, the, the, the VAS scale and understanding how, to, how do we quantify pain, which is an experienced phenomenon. And, and difficult. it's not like, you know, measuring a blood pressure or a heartbeat. It's, it's a lot more squishy than that. And, and I think this has been based on what you've told me. One of the classic problems of being able to treat pain is saying, like, how do we have some sort of objective markers to be able to say, are, are we giving a patient the right treatment? Is it being effect, Is it affecting the change that we want? And do we need to make any changes based on that feedback? What matters is, is probably more importantly, and, and I think that's individually defined. You know, just like I would never presume to tell you what your financial goals are, presumably as a financial advisor, you don't tell people what their financial goals are either. You ask them. And I would say that the, the similarly with pain management, you know, that has to be the driver of this conversation. Now, there's ways that you can help people understand what their goals are. And, and what I mean by that is you can identify in a non-threatening and care, caring way that there are factors related to their biopsychosocial condition that are not an advantage to them. And that could mean severe anxiety, severe depression, anger, um, sleep disturbance, you know, obvious lifestyle choices, you know, you just need to be able to put a plan in place that takes into account realistically what's achievable for this patient and also what's going to be of the greatest impact. Because, you know, if you look, Justin, at what matters to people and you attempt to value health outcomes using something called quality adjusted life years, one thing you do is you ask people for a set of trade-offs. And what are the trade-offs? Usually when we talk about quality adjusted life years, the, the trade-off is as follows. Uh, I would give up X years of my life, shorten my life, in order to avoid Y years of this condition. And when you ask people and hundreds of people if they would rather 
give up years of their life to avoid living one year with even rare depression. More than 50% of people are willing to give up a year of their life. And when you start to look at being often depressed, I mean, you're talking about close to 75% of people are willing to give up a year of their life. Close to 50% are willing up to give, to give up four to five years of their life to avoid living with severe depression. Less than 50% of people are willing to give up any years of their life to avoid living with you know, mild or moderate pain. We didn't ask about severe pain in that study. I didn't ask about it. So when you think about that and you think about how uh, under-recognized comorbid depression, anxiety, mood disorders are in the chronic pain population, and they probably exist in 40 to 50% of those patients, those ranges you know, in the literature go anywhere from 30% to 60%. You know that if you don't start your visit with some objective information surrounding a holistic view of that patient, how is their sleep? How is their mood? How is their physical function? How is their, are their activities of daily living? How is their pain on average? Then what you end up with is a trap of politeness where you ask people how they're doing and they say they're doing great and they don't tell you that they're severely depressed. They don't tell you that they feel hopeless and worthless. And so, you know, there's a challenge and a societal perceived shame related to that that makes objective information or at least semi-objective patient reported outcomes very important uh, as an initial tool. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially with, you know, the more, I'll call them stigmatized questions about mental health, especially, and, and where there is that shame associated. It's, I mean, it makes sense looking at the full orb of the human experience. And so you are, you've probably perceived these things over years as a clinician. And, and then at some point you got to a place where you thought, you know what, the way we're treating pain, I think that perhaps can be, we, we can improve it. We can maybe even revolutionize it by asking the right questions and getting better access to data. So tell, tell me about that process. Yeah. So Justin, what you're describing is nothing new and I'm not, um, you know, what I, I will tell you is I, I've always been somebody who scratches their own itch, who does things that, uh, in a way have always helped me automate busy work and help me uh, go to every, literally wake up every day and move through it with doing the tasks that I've really selected for myself that give me both, you know, productivity and also um, are enjoyable. So to me, the concept of using outcomes in my practice to really help me understand patients better was not new. Operationalizing it to work in private practice for me was the itch that I had to scratch. In my fellowship, we collected uh, prospective patient-reported outcomes uh, using the Promise measurement system, uh, using the Choir system. And Choir wa was something that uh, worked in, in the academic setting um, and you know, was a, a really important part of the way we uh, took to every encounter. The concept of using multidimensional metrics in chronic pain care has been espoused in every major consensus document in the last 10 years. And that goes from the Institute of Medicine report to the NIH task force for low back pain to the federal and national pain strategies and even the interagency task force uh, in 2018. I mean, all of these things talk about multidimensional metrics. Everybody knows that, that pain is a biopsychosocial construct. Nobody doubts that the biology, the psychology, and the social impacts of pain are important. 
uh, one of my Australian colleagues, Dan Bates, calls pain a social disease. And I think that's actually very accurate because the impact of pain on social function and marginalization and access to care does create multiple tiers uh, within the chronic pain community. Those who are socially isolated are probably significantly worse off. Taking that a step further, to operationalize using multidimensional metrics, metrics in my practice, I also needed to operationalize using that to do prospective clinical research on the procedures and interventions that I was performing. And so uh, the Real World Outcomes platform and Calary Health came from Jason Pope and I getting stuck in an airport together and looking at the spreadsheets we were keeping to try and keep track of the devices and the outcomes associated with those. And looking at it as this incredibly love-driven, um, hate-rewarded torture chamber of, uh, that had this precipitous you know, kind of fall where one piece of bad data kind of led to you questioning, well, is, is the whole thing questionable? Like, is this even valid? And, you know, that's like watching a house of cards fall down. And I, I was really discouraged by that. So I wanted to create a situation where I could automate the busy work of capturing all my interventional proceeds, like all my procedures, what I was doing, how many implants I was doing, what my trial to implant conversions rates were, what the programming was for my spinal cord stimulators and pumps, what the different medications that patients were on. Like, and it turned into this, this project that ultimately serves several functions. And that's to, to do clinical research, actually, because for anybody who's doing a lot of clinical research in their practice, you start to learn that the data capture systems we use are clunky at best. They're not built for docs to use in real world practices. And so what we paired was what we thought to be a slick, easy to use patient reported outcomes collection data capture system with a part 11 compliant clinical data capture system for research that revolves around patient reported outcomes assessed either in your clinic or by text message or SMS uh, or email. And that correlates that with a built-in procedure registry that tracks um, the patient journey from the moment they walk into your practice and to start to understand how patients are doing and the real impact of these procedures on things that matter. So that's pain impact, which is really defined as pain scores partly, but mostly defined as pain interference and physical function. And that pain impact score, that was validated in 2014 by the NIH Research Task Force for Low Back Pain. And what what we've done is we've really looked through the literature at what makes sense as a one-off measurement for chronic pain. And we think the, that the PROMISE 29, which is a set of 29 questions that gives you mood, um, that is anxiety, depression, social isolation, sleep disturbance, fatigue, physical function, pain interference, and, and pain. It gives you those metrics, but also allows you to calculate this pain impact score. That's kind of the you know, the, the, the first, uh, you know, metric that we want to collect universally relevant to most patients. And we've used that successfully to start defining what spinal cord stimulator success means um, by correlating it to percent pain relief. And we look forward to, to engaging other docs to use this tool to start redefining the, the measurement of what matters in pain care. 
So let me just make sure that I understand, especially from a, from a physician experience, what you just described. So you said, you know, there's, a, say, 10 different types of maybe spinal cord implants that I might be using. So I, as a physician, I might have a little dashboard that has 10 different line items on it. Say, here's all the this thing and all the that thing that I've implanted over the last six months. And then based on feedback that you're getting in real time from patients, every maybe you text them every week or every couple of weeks, there's data points that are getting automatically aggregated into this system so that a physician who's doing these procedures can not without having to you know have somebody call and say hey mrs smith how, how are you from one to ten they're punching something in on their phone or they're replying to an email and, and giving this data and and that's something that physicians can just monitor in real time is that is that accurate yeah so so exactly right so um the way we see it, and you know, you mentioned uh, that pain is a squishy vital sign, and pain is the fifth vital sign. Was a, a miserable failure by Jayco to, uh, you know, try and identify and create awareness surrounding the undertreatment of chronic pain. Now we can go historically into that, but you know, suffice it to say that that's really based on two studies by a guy named Warfield and another guy named Applebaum. Um, which were basically post-operative phone call studies of like 200 patients where they asked the people experience what, you know, what type of pain they experienced post-operatively. And it turned out that a lot of people had experienced an episode of moderate to severe pain, um, like 60 something percent upon discharge. And that particular um, narrative, I believe in my understanding of history, really is what took off this chronic pain or pain is the fifth vital sign endeavor. Now what that did though, um, and there's a complexity and a historical and political significance to that and opioids that I don't want to go in, get into. But what that did was made pain numbers and the lowering of them really important for hospitals and administrators. Now, what we know and what we've described earlier in that that probably works for acute pain, like you break your arm or you have a surgery, that probably works. It doesn't work for chronic pain. And the impact of these chronic pain devices and implants, and this extends to just any procedure. So it could be spinal cord stimulators. It could be uh, minimally invasive stenosis treatments. It could be SI joint fusion devices. It could be spine surgery. It could be radiofrequency procedures, epidurals, et cetera. Is, to me, what's the functional improvement that this patient's uh, gaining from this? And so when we look at a spinal cord stimulator or an implant or a um, vertiflex interspinous spacer implant, what we see is this. Uh, longitudinally, after that implant date, the patient will get a text message or an SMS uh, or an email, and they'll fill out from their doctor a brief promise 29. If they have a uh, interspinous spacer for stenosis, they'll get a ZCQ or Zurich claudication questionnaire. And those longitudinal results will be tracked and presented back graphically to the physician, and they can use that to understand the impact of these therapies on their, on their patients. Uh, and what I look for is, is their pain interference? The first thing I look for, pain interference. Pain interference asks some really simple questions. Does the pain interfere you from doing uh, normal activities like preparing a meal? This is a you know, pretty simple question. Pain interference to me, if you're in the severe range, and that's the promise 29 is Purely inter pain, inter pain interference patients in the country. If you're there, yeah, we have a problem. If we do an intervention or some treatment and that 
reduces your pain interference, even if your pain score doesn't change, the, the meaningful difference for, for pain interference is about a score of three. And when you think about that, that, that means about a third of a standard deviation. That's not that hard to achieve, actually, for most patients if they're responding to a therapy. And I don't care if their pain score goes from a seven to a six or from a nine to a two. If their pain interference dramatically improves, that's really meaningful to that patient. Makes sense. So I'm curious, you know, take me from that moment at the airport with Dr. Pope to all of a sudden we've got this whole platform interface that's really slick and capturing all this data in real time. Obviously, there's a couple steps in between. So tell me about the genesis of the company, putting together a team, you know, delegating all that stuff. Yeah. So fortunately, this is a real team sport. And um, from day one, uh, Jason and I sat down and we had a, we talked to um, my brother, who's a serial uh, computer programmer, chief architect, CTO, entrepreneur. And we were able to uh, very quickly identify that we needed a data scientist and another pain doctor, uh, Michael Haynes in Jacksonville, was able to introduce us to his brother, who's a data scientist with background in uh, industrial failure analysis and uh, radiology, and actually worked for a, uh, for a health system previously. Um, and so we put together this team, along with our head of design, who's, um, again, within this network of people, and really ultimately built the minimum viable product, uh, which worked and has continued to work with iterations upon iterations, leveraging the, the, the honestly thousands of hours of time and the technical expertise. Without the technical team that we've had, the vision that Jason Pope and I had would never have kind of come to any sort of fruition. And <clears throat> this goes to show you that in, in general, ideas are really only a small part of the puzzle. There's so many layers of feasibility, especially with software. There's many things that the answer is yes, but, and that but could be extreme costs, time, uh, or hurdles that, you know, in many ways, fortunately, we live in a world where workarounds are oftentimes easier to start thinking about than this primary pie in the sky solution. Now, I'm a pie in the sky thinker. And so I would tell you, without any of these kind of people to channel that into a uh, a level of productivity that is feasible in the real world and not in Mike land. That would be like that. That's the, the key is surround yourself by people and understand your own um, shortcomings. And for me, that's totally focused on, I don't really take no as an answer and I think everything's feasible. So um, yeah, it's been fortunate to be balanced. Yeah. Tell me about one of those times maybe that you ran into when you, the answer was yes, but and it's like, oh, there's a big hurdle. There's a big operational challenge. There's something that seems like an impassable chasm. How, how'd you guys work that out? Honestly, at the end of the day, I, I think it's always been about a, a willingness to think about alternatives. And so I would tell you that on, on several occasions, the exercise of seeking alternatives led us to get back to the chasm and for the other side to cross to my side or vice versa. And, um, you know, we learned this actually in a parenting class, my wife and I, that one of, no, we've never, we, I think we've successfully done this maybe a handful of times with our kids, not, but um, maybe once. I'm not sure. Okay. 
either way, one exercise is to, you know, when you have an impassable chasm between your two kids to sit them down and say, okay, let's get our crayons out and let's write down what the alternative solutions are. And the, the parenting um, expert uh, t- said, it could be, if he, if he says, you know, I'm going to, I want to kill my brother, you write it down, write down all the options. And then, you know, seriously go through them and say, okay, let's look at this option. We wrote this down. Is this something we really could do? She says, and most of the time they're going to look at it. They're going to be rational and they're going to be like, okay, I guess, I guess, I guess that's not an option. So I think it's about the willingness to sit down and expand. Even if you're, you ultimately get back to where you were. And I think myopia is something that most people are um, both guilty of and fall victims to um, myself included. And that's one of my biggest personal growths in being able to be a, to, to work in a team has to be, has, has been to kind of expand beyond the individual contributor and start to not being so myopic. It's true what they say, everything you need in life, you learned in kindergarten. That it is, just, yeah, exactly. it applies all the way, all the way down the line. Um, tell me what, you know, as the, the pie in the sky guy that you are, what does an ideal future for Calarity look like? And as this gets continued to be, you continue to refine and to roll out this platform with other practices and things. What, what does the future look like for this uh, endeavor? And the world we're living in, I think the biggest challenge that we have is creating a virtuous loop. And I think Clary Health has the potential to create that virtuous loop. And uh, I w- what I would say is that's born out of my own frustrations and my understanding of the frustrations of my colleagues and patients. And so I'll, what I'll say is this. We believe that reframing the metrics by which we judge the success of treatments is a critical first step to then identifying which treatments are successful and impactful and then understanding the medical necessity of those treatments. And to do that in a patient-centric way and in a way that continuously updates the data set and understanding and algorithms, bringing in the latest information from disparate sources, integrating multiple data channels in a environment that embodies extreme interoperability and the liquefaction of health healthcare data, unlocking outcomes and the understanding of where patients have been and where they're going from the EHR will afford us the opportunity to get patients the right treatment at the right time to uh, improve the societal impact of chronic pain to hopefully answer important questions regarding uh, which medications have real world evidence surrounding them and which have literature surrounding them with, you know, inherent biases, unfortunately, that literature has and that studies designed for things like FDA approval have. Um, and to occupy the space, and this is most important, and I think something that Jason Pope really uh, says very nicely, to occupy the space between clinical practice and level one evidence. We need this um, collaboration and enormous collaborative experience to drive forward the selection of therapies, the implementation of therapies, the medical necessity and access to therapies so that a patient who's probabilistically going to respond to therapy X, Y, and Z 
does not have to try therapies A, B, C, D, E, et cetera, including you know, fentanyl, morphine, methadone. I mean, I've gotten these letters. Before a patient can have this drug or this medicine, they need to try these five opioids. That is like ludicrous speed, right? So, so we need to get to that stage where we align everybody's interests and that will save everybody money, save everybody time, get everybody back to work and feeling better in a more productive way than the current state of affairs we have. That was a longer answer than you wanted. So what's the future? The future is right patient, right treatment, right time in a virtuous loop created by collaborating between physicians and patient reported outcomes to measure what matters to define the future of pain care. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm, I'm thinking even like in terms of application for insurance and reimbursement for procedures and being able to set to, to have this, you know, much more robust data set, uh, for certain implants or certain devices or procedures, like getting, getting things paid for, or being able to, um, much more quickly determine which devices are working and which aren't. And because obviously in pain management, there's a lot of industry collaboration that can create these conflicts of interest. It, the water can be muddy when we have more objective data that's more readily accessible. You just shorten the, the runway and all of that and say we can get much more quickly from beginning to end on a life cycle of a product if something sucks and we can see it <laughs> and everyone can see it all at the same time. They're not going to have people, their salespeople are going to stop knocking on your door much more quickly, presumably. And that's good for everyone. I think that's. Uh, I think there's competition that was in, in created in this space by the entry of Nevro and the Sensa data that revolutionized the way we uh, think about level one evidence for low back pain and spinal cord stimulation. And the competition that has been spurred on by their entry into this market has been incredibly impactful for patients and for physicians and also for those device companies. I, I totally agree that that the next data revolution though is big data. It's this extreme interoperability, it's, it's liquidification. It is this giant leap forward into innovation and acceleration because like you just said, without a compass, we're in trouble. And I can just as easily show you many opportunities for those who say these therapies don't work and should not be medically necessary and covered uh, and paid for to enter and say, you know, well, there's a lot of evidence here that has bias. There's a lot of evidence here that doesn't actually compare apples to apples. And I think uh, uh, as physicians, you know, you need to understand your own practice dynamics, how things work in your hands, because there's no way to me, for me to believe anything I see published in a clinical trial or certainly in some uh, marketing material unless it's replicated in my practice. And that, that in, inevitably in pain care has to inv involve seeing people who get better. And that doesn't mean pain scores. That really means, you know, holistically, is this patient better? What does treatment success mean to them? How can we align our treatment strategy with their interests? And, and that might be as simple as saying, you know, to my nurse practitioner, for example, Look, if people are severely depressed and they're on, on uh, medications for pain, if they're not on an antidepressant with dual use for pain, we should put them on it. Unless there's a contraindication. You know, taking this um, objective or semi-objective patient reported outcome as the starting point for a conversation 
and the objective kind of defining document for each visit is important in the chronic pain population. Of course, the person who comes in with a herniated disc with back and leg pain, you know, maybe, you know, if they, even if they're severely depressed, if they have an acute radiculopathy, I'm probably treating their acute radiculopathy. I bet you the next time I assess their biopsychosocial status, it'll probably be better. So, you know, you have to contextualize this, but we should be looking for this in our patients. And um, everything, you, you know, you, you need to know in life, you did learn in kindergarten. I, I agree with that. And that includes sometimes being polite and not talking about, you know, real things that are going on in your life um, that may impact or may be a covariate of success or failure in your treatment and ultimately in my treatment, right? If you come in, and here's a, another base case, Justin. How many times is a device or an implant judged based on a pain score for a different body area? It wasn't designed to, to treat. A patient comes in with a pain score of nine overall, but it's all in their neck and their back and leg are, are great after the spinal cord simulator. If I did a chart review on that patient, if those scores weren't separated out, we would never know that. At Caleri, what we've done is we actually assigned pain areas on body maps to devices. So we can really make sure we're tracking the right metric for the right implant uh, over time. And again, while pain scores are unfortunately still important and still something we track, the focus is more on functional metrics because that's really what matters to patients, what matters to me. Yeah, it makes sense. I, uh, I want to pivot briefly and then we'll wrap things up and I appreciate your time today. Um, you are a guy who has a lot of things going on. Uh, you have your clinical practice and a lot of the research you're doing and then Caleri and then I know you're a, you're a family man and lots of other things. And you talked about a little bit about, you just mentioned in passing, like the way that you stay organized and like set your tasks for the day and you get out of bed and you love what you do and you love every day. And I, I'm curious, you know, as somebody who personally in the last 12 months, I'd say I've spent a lot of time thinking intentionally about how do I build a life that is most productive and optimal for the goals that I have professionally and as a human, as a spouse, as a dad. What are some of the resources that you've used or some of the methods? Like, how do you, how do you build your life for optimal productivity right now? Well, that's a great question. And the first, the first step was by utterly almost failing in doing it and spending too many nights, uh, consecutive nights up till two and three o'clock in the morning working on side projects and papers and other uh, endeavors. And so the first, and I did that for about a year and really was at, at the point where I really was, um, it was, imp I was having impacts. So what I learned was I need to set aside time and stick to it and say no to things and then fill up the time that I do have with things that I'm enjoy doing and I'm really interested in doing. And what that means is either automating busy work or I know it's horrible, hard to, for me to even say, um, Des delegating it out to people. But at the end of the day, what I've realized is that the few unpleasant things that I have to do as part of my professional life are things that no one else can do. I have to do them. They just got to get done. And almost everything else that I don't necessarily have to do, I have figured out a way to, to take those, give them to other people who I trust and take the things that I am interested in that are productive for me. Of course, if they weren't productive, I wouldn't be able to delegate the other things but that are productive for me and that drive me to continue to think and innovate and create and be um, interested in what I'm doing. And when I walk into my clinic, Justin, 
I, it's humming with clinical care. I'm seeing patients, my nurse practitioner seeing patients. We have medical assistants uh, and procedures that are occurring. My research coordinators are doing some in-office uh, studies. We're seeing uh, subjects that are following up from research. Our clinic is humming with this activity. Uh, when I walk in there, it is, it's like a beautiful orchestra and I get to walk into the music that's occurring every day. So to me, professionally, when I take that, daily experience and I marry it with the opportunities that I have to, to engage with smart, like-minded people, um, physician colleagues across the country at night on webinars and calls. Um, and to do that in a way that also gives me time with my family and mostly late nights with my, you know, my neuromodulation brother, brothers and sisters. Um, that's, that's the beauty of it. It's, it, the whole thing feeds into one other piece of it. The clinical part feeds into the research. The research feeds into the idea generation and collaboration. The idea generation and collaboration fuels better patient care, better patient outcomes, more uh, innovation and acceleration of the space we're in. And ultimately, these are intellectually satisfying. They provide a, a common ground for me to, to collaborate with my who be, you know, friends and colleagues in the space and ultimately to really impact the world we're living in for the better. So I, uh, I'm just grateful for every day of this, like I said, this beautiful orchestra. Yeah. What would you say to somebody who's listening and thinking, oh my gosh, I walk into my practice and it does not sound like an orchestra and I'm just trying to get at least in tune. What, what was the first step for you to be able to make progress in that direction when you were redlining? I think it's about scratching your own itch. You know, if you're plagued by notes, get a scribe. Uh, I can tell you that I, had the experience of having an amazing scribe that's super well trained um, and scribes who that you know honestly it was my fault i didn't spend i didn't really spend en enough time whatever week it was that they started i was a fatigued kind of person i didn't spend the time training them get a scribe and train them if you train a scribe and you write up your own you know little tidbits and statements that surrounding common talk tracks that you have you're gonna find that your scribe sounds like you because they're using your words. And as that becomes refined, it will liberate you from the documentation and let you get back to interacting with the patient. And actually, that alone makes the patient interaction extraordinarily more um, in, you know, interactive and you know, fulfilling. And at the end, if your scribe is really good, if you've taken the time to teach them what the physical exam is and means, and what your thought process is. And ultimately, really what that means is you're just giving your patient a pretty, you know, um, gentle synopsis of what you did and your scribe captures it. You're going to, your documentation will be fine. If they didn't use the exact right word, get over it. Who cares? If you feel better about putting a disclaimer at the bottom that it was dictated, but not read, so be it. But don't care about a little mistake here or there, as long as they channel your direct energy. That is enlightening. It frees you up. That's the best, one of the best things that I can say. The other thing is for me, it's about the limitations in chronic pain care. Okay. Most people think you have to try a million things, including all these outside the box treatments and you can, and I've been down that road, but at the end of the day, if you look at the evidence-based treatments and the French um, chapter of the international association for the study of pain just published this, this article, um, the French recommendations, they are the French experience. It's fantastic. There's literally 
three lines of therapy for chronic neuropathic pain. And it's, you know, lidocaine and TENS, and then SNRIs and gabapentin. And then there's a second line therapy, and it's capsaicin and Botox, and pregabalin and tricyclic antidepressants, maybe Tylenol and Tramadol. Then there's third line therapies, and that's basically spinal cord stimulation, and then opioids, and neuromodulation, PNS, et cetera. If people actually practice this way, this formulaically in their practice, and we put evidence-based therapies with level one evidence much earlier on in the care continuum, you'd be less frustrated. Your patients would probably be on less opioids. If we went a whole level uh, earlier and we said before anybody goes on to a strong opioid, they should be on or attempt a buprenorphine formulation in a micro doses on label for pain, we would be in a better place. And if you formulaically practice like that, so for me, I don't prescribe opioids to everybody who walks in the door. I prescribe opioids when they're appropriate. And almost everybody who comes in who's been on opioids, the same opioids for years and years and years and years, undergoes some rotation. And usually that rotation is to an atypical agent. So I don't have unpleasant opioid conversations. I tell people that up front. If you want to be my patient, that's it. Take it or leave it. Uh, and most people, frankly, even if they're resistant up front, they'll do it. And most people do better. The ones who don't actually believe them most of the time. And I'm okay with them going back to where they were because they demonstrated to me their willingness to try and to engage with the, the kind of therapy that we are open-minded to in our practice. So if you create your practice that becomes open-minded, patient-centric, you talk to patients about what matters to them, and you don't just you know, mindlessly practice medicine, it's, it's fulfilling. It really is. And you layer on research, you layer on, I mean, there are other people who are more interested in medical legal work. There are more people who are interested in advanced therapies and doing lots of advanced procedures. There's lots of people who are not. You know, you have to do what works for you. And if there's something that you dread, ax it. Because it, chances are good it doesn't have to be you doing it. Or just don't do it. Change. Well, I think we'll end on that note. Dr. Michael Fishman, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks for joining us on the Anesthesia Success Podcast. Thanks, Justin. Hey, that was a real pleasure. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to anesthesiasuccess.com where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesiology and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I would also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on the Anesthesia Success Podcast.